Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, as we read the verses 9 through 11. Let us hear God's holy word. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So far the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts today. Dear friends, do you ever wonder what the saints in heaven are doing? as they await the final judgment and the resurrection of their bodies. The Bible, as it turns out, says very little about this. It says that they will be at rest. It also says that they will be praising and worshiping God, but that's about all. Few other details are given. John, however, gives us a very detailed description of what the martyrs are doing. And he does so in the words of our text today, Revelation 6, the verses 9 through 11. John was in the throne room of heaven. And while he was there, he saw in the hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll that was written on both sides. This scroll, as we have seen previously, represents the unfolding of human history from the ascension of Christ to the second coming. And it's written on both sides to indicate that nothing can be added to this plan. Significantly, this scroll was sealed with seven seals. And each of these seals represents seven judgments that God will send on the earth prior to the second coming of Christ. In order for God's plan to be executed, these seals had to be loosened. Unfortunately, however, no one in heaven or on earth was found worthy to open the seven seals, and that in turn caused John to weep. But while John wept, suddenly the Lamb of God came forward, and he himself took the scroll in his hand and proceeded to loosen its seven seals. Now we've already considered the first four of these seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We come now to the fifth seal, which describes the saints under the altar. And here our Lord takes us from earth back to heaven. In the previous vision, we saw the desolations that God wrought on the earth via the four horsemen. But now we go back to heaven, to the very altar of God in his heavenly throne room. And it's to this vision that we turn our attention with God's help today. Our theme is the saints under the altar. And we'll consider, first of all, the price they paid, secondly, the cry they make, and thirdly, the answer they receive. 
As the Lamb of God opened the fifth seal, John says he saw an altar. Now, the altar was an important furnishing in the tabernacle and the temple. There were actually two such altars. There was the altar of sacrifice, which was located outside the temple in the inner court, and on which were burned the carcasses of various animals. But there was also the altar of incense, which was located at the far end of the holy place in the middle of the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, which of these two altars John saw, we do not know. He doesn't specify. He could have seen either of them. However, since the saints were praying, it's likely that this altar was the altar of incense, since incense represents the prayers of the saints. Well, whatever the case, what is especially important here is not so much the altar, but what John saw under the altar. And what was that? What did John see? Well, he tells us. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. John, in other words, sees the martyrs. He sees those who gave their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fact that they are under the altar symbolizes their close proximity to God himself. The idea is that because of the sacrifice that they made, which was the ultimate sacrifice, they have a very privileged position in heaven. As one writer comments, and I quote, Though rejected on earth, they are close to God's presence in heaven, kept safe by the reigning lamb for whom they died. Well, these martyrs remind us, don't they, of the enmity that exists between the church on the one hand and the world on the other. And that enmity extends back to the time of the fall. You may remember in Genesis chapter 3, after man fell into sin, that God pronounced a curse on the serpent. And he said that he would put enmity between his seed and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman would bruise the heel of the seed of the, of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent would bruise the head of the seed of the woman. In other words, there would be a state of perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman, which is the church, and the seed of the serpent, which is the world. Now, to be sure, the seed of the woman would eventually gain the victory. She would crush the head of the serpent, but it would come at a cost. The seed of the woman's heel would be bruised. And we see that played out throughout redemptive history. The first casualty in this conflict was Abel, the son of Adam and Eve. Abel's brother Cain was very angry with Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God and Cain's was not. And so in a fit of anger, Cain killed his brother Abel. And in so doing, Abel became the first martyr. But he was only one of many. We can think of the prophets of the Old Testament many of whom were killed by the Jews, the people to whom they were sent to prophesy. Or we can think of the apostles themselves, many of whom suffered beatings and scourgings and imprisonments for the cause of the gospel. We think particularly of the apostle Paul in this regard. We can think of the many Christians who were killed during the reign of Emperor Nero and later on Domitian. We can think of the Protestant martyrs in England who lost their lives during the reign of Bloody Mary Throughout the centuries, 
Many tens of thousands of Christians have been put to death for the cause of the gospel. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others, he said, had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Dear friends, this is still happening today, not just in far-off places like China and Afghanistan and Muslim countries, but also here in Canada, our home and native land, the true north, strong and supposedly free. Think of how pastors were treated by the government for refusing to close down their churches during covid Some were heavily fined, some were imprisoned. And even now that COVID is largely behind us, thankfully, Christian pastors are being fined and imprisoned for protesting drag queen story time for young children in local public libraries. Despite our society's demand for tolerance, there's very little tolerance for Christian views on anything today, especially not moral issues. In fact, just this past week, I received an email from Rebel News informing me that they are planning to produce a full-length, high-quality documentary on the persecution of Christians in Canada and asking for donations. And the title of the documentary is The Church Under Fire, Canada's War on Christianity. The announcement advertising the project said in part, and I quote, jailing Christian pastors is becoming normal in Canada. And if it happens in Canada today, you can bet it's going to happen in America tomorrow. Yes, friends, persecution is happening, even right here at home. I read somewhere that more Christians have been martyred for their faith in the past century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Millions more face discrimination of various kinds every single day. And it's only going to get worse. Now, none of this should surprise us, of course. In Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And along the same lines, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Christians will suffer persecution of one kind or another. Doesn't mean we'll all necessarily be imprisoned or killed. Persecution can take various forms. Persecution is losing your job because you refuse to work on the Lord's Day or do something that's not ethical or legal. Persecution is being made fun of because of your beliefs and principles and standing up for what's right and true and just according to the word of God. Persecution is being shut out of the political system because you refuse to go along with the flow and repeat everyone else's talking points. The point is we will suffer persecution and the day may come when we will even be put to death for our faith. Now that raises the whole question, why is this? Why, why are Christians persecuted? Why have they always been persecuted? 
Well, there are several possible reasons for this. First of all, because the world hates us. This hatred, as we've seen, extends all the way back to the beginning of time. When God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it still continues to this day. Why does the world hate us so much? Well, primarily because we believe that faith in Christ is the only way to be saved. And that goes right against the prevailing philosophy of our day, which regards all religions as equal, and therefore there are many paths to God. But Christians say no. We say there's only one true religion, and there's only one path to God, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, the world rejects that. That's far too narrow. And consequently, they persecute us. Secondly, Christians are persecuted because the devil seeks to destroy us. Peter advises believers, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Yes, Satan aims to swallow or destroy all believers. And one way he does that is by persecuting us. Thirdly, God allows Christians to be persecuted in order to purify their faith. That's what James says, doesn't he? In James 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Fourthly, God allows persecution as a means of growing the church. One of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Tertullian, said that, and I quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And by that he meant that as Christians sacrifice their lives for the cause of the gospel, others will notice and they'll be won over to Christ because they'll conclude that if, if one is prepared to die for their faith, then it must be true. Fifthly, persecution is the pathway to God's gracious reward. As he approached his death, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there, is, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Well, do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the crown comes after the cross. It's only after we suffer that we will gain the victory. It's in the way of persecution that believers receive the crown of righteousness. The point is, as Christians, we can expect to experience some form of persecution. And I wonder, are you prepared for that? Are you prepared to suffer for Christ? Are you prepared to give up things for him? Your money, your house, your family, even your very life if necessary for the cause of the gospel. Sad to say, not many are, at least not here in North America. But we should. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Child of God, dear believer, he gave his life for you. Should you not be prepared to give your life to him? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1? Having outlined in the previous chapters all that Christ has done to save us from our sins, Paul writes this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do you see what he's saying? 
He's saying that in light of all that Christ has done for you, should you not be willing to do anything for him? Should you not present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God? Isn't that your reasonable service? Isn't that the least thing you can do? Oh, indeed it is. Dr. Joel Beakey writes this. He says, If Christ died upon the cross, bearing God's wrath for sin, then it is sacrilege for us to hold anything back from him. Oh, do you believe that today? Does that show itself in your life? The saints under the altar therefore paid a great price, but they also make a great cry. That brings us to our second point. As John observes the saints under the altar, he hears a great cry. And it comes in verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the martyrs under the altar cry out over the continued slaughter of the saints on earth. It's interesting, when Cain murdered Abel, the Lord said that the voice of his brother's blood was crying to me from the ground. Well, now in heaven, the souls of the martyrs cry to God to avenge their blood. Now, it's important to understand that this is not a cry for personal vengeance. The Bible clearly condemns this. In Romans 12, verse 19, Paul writes, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What is more, our Savior himself taught us to love our enemies. He himself asked God to forgive those who were nailing him to the cross, as did Stephen when he was being stoned to death. And what is even more, these martyrs that we read of in verse 10 were in their glorified state. They were under the altar. And as we'll see in a moment, they were clothed in white robes. That means that they were perfect. They were without sin. So this prayer of theirs cannot have been sinful. So rather than a cry for personal revenge, it's better to see this as a cry for God to avenge his enemies. Now we find many examples of that kind of thing in the Psalms, especially in the so-called imprecatory Psalms. Let me give you an example. Psalm 7, verse 6. The psalmist writes, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to be the judgment you have commanded. Perhaps the most shocking example of this is Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9, where the psalmist writes, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now the imprecatory psalms admittedly raise a lot of questions, especially in light of Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. And I don't have time to deal with all of that now. But suffice it to say that like the prayer of the saints under the altar, these psalms are not demanding personal revenge. They're asking God to avenge his own enemies. So in essence, the martyrs under the altar were really praying the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. The Heidelberg Catechism explains that petition as follows. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. And then it says, preserve and increase thy church 
And then it says, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee. And also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all. Now that's exactly what the martyrs were praying for. They were praying that God would be glorified in the destruction of his and their enemies. And as such, we may pray, yes, must pray the same prayer. Now thankfully, we don't live in a country where Christians are routinely being martyred for their faith, at least not yet. But there are many Christians around the world who are. And we need to pray that those who are persecuting them may either be brought to faith or destroyed so that God may be vindicated and his kingdom may continue to spread. And we need to do the same thing regarding the enemies of God in our own nation. Of course, we don't desire that any should perish. God doesn't desire that either. On the contrary, like God, we should desire that all men come to faith in Christ, even those who viciously oppose the spread of the gospel and the application of biblical principles in the public sphere. That means we must pray for the conversion of those who seek to take the life of the unborn or who deny the existence of God and ridicule those who do not or who agitate for the acceptance and even celebration of homosexuality and transgenderism or who seek to suppress Christian voices in our governments and in our courts. We need to pray for their conversion. But if they don't, convert, if they don't repent, if they don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they continue to do irreparable harm to the church of Christ or to the cause of the gospel in our land, then we may and even must pray for their destruction. Not for our benefit. Not so that we can be satisfied in seeing our enemies destroyed. Not out of some desire for personal revenge, but for the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. Well, my friends, are you doing that? Or are we, like so many others in the church today, simply going along with the flow? Is our motto, live and let live and let sleeping dogs lie? You know, what we think and pray concerning the enemies of the Lord reveals a lot about our condition, our spiritual condition before God and our relationship with God. Those who love God and his cause will pray for his glory even if that means the destruction of his enemies and all that which opposes him. And those who do not will simply sit back and do nothing. And so which is it for you? The saints under the altar make a great cry. Now what answer did they get in response to that cry? That brings us to our third and final point. The saints under the altar do not cry in vain, but neither is their prayer answered right away. Instead, God in Christ comforts them, and he does so in two ways. First of all, he assures them of their righteous standing before God. We read in verse 11 that a white robe was given to each of them. Now, white is a symbol of purity, and as such, it represents the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness that he earned as a result of keeping the law of God all the time that he lived on this earth. And that righteousness is imputed to the believer by faith. And so this white robe symbolizes the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
but it also symbolizes victory. And as such, it assures these saints that they are more than conquerors in the battle of faith. Secondly, he advised that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, this promise is meant to reassure these souls that they have not cried out in vain, but they must rest until the gathering in of all of the elect and especially the offering up of all the martyrs of God has been accomplished. And God knows all who are his, and he knows the exact number of people who will die for him. His timetable is also absolutely perfect. He's never one to step out of sync with his glorious purposes to gather, preserve, defend, and glorify the the church of his Son. And until that purpose is fulfilled, the saints must wait. But one day, and perhaps sooner than we think, this wait will be over. Then when the last of the saints is brought into the kingdom, the trumpet will sound, the archangel will shout with a mighty shout, and Christ will descend with the clouds, accompanied by myriads of angels and the saints who have gone on before us, and the dead will be raised, and every eye will see him, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the saints shall enter their final rest. And so we see that although the church will face persecution in this world, ultimately she shall emerge victorious through Christ, her King. And then those who persecuted them will be brought to justice, God's justice, and they will be damned to hell, while the people of God are welcomed into heaven where they will live and reign with Christ forever and ever. And so, dear believer, do not lose heart today. But keep looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for through him we shall achieve the victory. And therefore we may sing with the psalmist, Thou art, O God, our boast, the glory of our power. Thy sovereign grace is heir, our fortress and our tower. We lift our heads aloft, for God, our shield, is o'er us. Through him through him alone, whose presence goes before us. We'll wear the victor's crown, no more by foes assaulted. We'll triumph through our king, by Israel's God exalted. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the word of God every Sunday on this station. If you were blessed by or if you have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Won't you please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, and Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. That's banneroftruth at frcna.org. And when you write, please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Prunk, the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace 
And we hope it may be a rich blessing to you and your loved ones. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website. And the website is www.banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. You can send donations in any amount to our mailing address, which is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.